Hello, my name's Helen Russell. I'm a journalist, happiness researcher and author. And How To Be Sad is the podcast exploring why we get sad, what we can do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. Inspired by the book of the same name. Each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Holly Tucker, MBE, is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and UK ambassador for creative small businesses. She's the founder of NotOnTheHighStreet.com and Holly & Co. And she's also a podcaster, author of two best-selling business books, as well as the brand new Do What You Love. Holly is a famously positive, colourful, fabulous force of nature, but life wasn't always so sunny. And a future in business was far from a shoo-in. She got an E in business studies at school, was divorced age 23, battled a brain tumour, endured a near breakdown and has found herself on the brink financially more than once. But now, Holly says, these moments have taught me everything and I'm sure that my future is built on the scaffolding of these failures. So, Holly Tucker, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm just completely honoured and I'm a massive fan of yours. So, yeah, this is a lovely moment for me. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. I would love to start at the beginning for anyone who hasn't yet uh, read the book, but can you tell us a little about your nickname growing up? Yes, this nickname, Holly Hurricane. I think I was just talking to my mum recently and she said, you know, it wasn't me. It was your aunt that gave you this because I, I think my aunt was trying to summarise this girl that seemed to be in a hurry. A hurry generally in the day was going from one thing to another. But also she won. I think she was trying to summarise how I had a zest for life. I think that was what she was trying to get to. And that sort of continued, I suppose. I believe I was in a hurry, but sometimes that sounds negative, doesn't it? I think I was so eager to get to the next thing. So when can I babysit? Would I would ask my mum. When can I get a mobile phone? When can I go to work? How can I get a job? You know, and I think that that just sort of carried through in my life. I was so excited that the world was opening up to me that I was itching to get to it. And, you know, that has been amazing in my world. And I'm, I've just turned 44 and I'm still a bit of a hurricane, a little bit of a, maybe a slower hurricane, maybe not like whatever gale winds, whatever catastrophic level it is, maybe not quite that level anymore, but it does also have its downsides. You have to sort of, you have to slightly pay for being in a hurry. And what do you think, what sort of payment are we talking here? What are the downsides in your experience? Well, if you are in a hurry, by very nature, you're going with life. You know, you're going with the opportunities, you're feeling the universe and you're running with it. And potentially maybe why I'm not the sort of top level of hurricane now is because I do think more. You know, I will consider things more. I've actually started, it's taken me to be in my 40s, by the way, to do this. I've actually started <laughs> to realise that maybe the um, tortoise in the hare and the tortoise, maybe they had a point, you know. And so actually, it's quite nice. You know, I'm I'm sort of understanding that not everything has to happen immediately. 
It's difficult for me, though. It is difficult, I have to say. And you think that that comes with age? I think it comes with experience. And I think it comes with the knockdowns. And I think by very nature, you have more knockdowns, the older, you you know, as life goes on, you accumulate them, don't you? So I think that it's rather than age, necessarily, it's your life experience and the the battle scars, I call them. And I would say from from reading your book and from following your work for many years that you have crammed in a lot of life experience. You started work age 17. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I started work at 17. And had um, my first birthday was my 18th birthday in um, publicist advertising agency. And that was my start. You know, I didn't go to classic university. I went to what I call the university of life, you know, advertising after the 80s. And I think back to what I was doing at 18. You know, I was, you know, still in the days of faxes and all those sort of things. I maybe would get a black cab to my, to our clients six times a day to go and drop things off. You know, it was absolutely an unbelievable world. One where I was working definitely 12 hours a day at 18. I was partying hard in the evening. I was commuting two hours home and two hours into the office, you know, and that was my start. And I now look back and I think I'm 44. I think about Holly and Co, what I'm doing and that I'm going to retire at 90, which by very nature, it means that I'm only halfway not even halfway through what I'm going to do so yes I feel a sense of nostalgia for an off-topic side note for a moment just the yeah those days of I remember an early temping job where they let me drive a company car Alfa Romeo and I was sort of 17 or times when I'd be sent in black cabs to deliver cheese to somebody in London you just think this is just a wild strange different time that oh my goodness you know very very different yes and then you also married young didn't you Yes, I did. And so how old were you when you got married? I think I was 21-ish when I got married, yes. And had that always been something that was important to you? Yeah, it was, absolutely. You know, my inner core is all about family and home and feeling protected. So for me, that made sense. Potentially, and I'm only really thinking about this right now, the hurricane Holly is on the outside, but only can be that way when there's that inner core, the, you know, the eye of the storm is calm. And so I think potentially that's always what I looked for. And that was my stability that I required as a hurricane. So it was very, very important to me. But, you know, it didn't work out. And the reason it didn't work out was <laughs> funny and enough. We change, you know, we change and we develop. And uh, this had been my childhood sweetheart. And, you know, we both wanted that at that point in time. But actually, we hadn't even grown up yet. And so growing up, I, I always think about, you know, we look back, don't we now and we say we're not the same person that I was in my 30s, in my 20s. You know, I I was a young girl at that point in time, but because I'd started work so young, I'd already, I was already now a mortgage, uh, you know, I had a mortgage, I had a home, I had a job for the years and years. I'd now become sort of the youngest account manager in London in advertising. You know, it seemed like, oh, and then you just get married, you know, married and children and even though I was a baby in a way. And so how much of a shock was that when it didn't work out, when things didn't go as as the plan seemed to roll out? Oh, it was absolutely horrific. It will be my first sort of slap in the face from life. And that had me flawed. It was one of two 
sort of very incredibly low moments in my life. It didn't help that I got diagnosed with a brain tumor at the same time. And it wasn't a scary tumor as in, you know, I I was going to live and it was going to be controlled and it was all fine. But it did have big side effects, you know, along with divorcing at 23, my career really coming sort of crashing down around me because actually I, I think I couldn't cope. And I get now why I couldn't cope. It was a lot for me to take on. It was a very low moment in my life. And one, though, that I now look back on, married again, have my child, he's 16, you know, and and my ex moved on, got married, has his own children. You know, that was our life. And that was what it was going to be. It's not what we expected. But we do look back, don't we, in all of these moments and say, well, what came out of that? And actually, I'm, I'm very grateful that... Um, Life did stop me in my tracks. I'm very interested in the idea of of sadness and despair as as a message and something that does make us stop. And I think as you're describing, when two very big things are happening to you at, at the same time, of course, it halts us in our tracks and we do have to reevaluate. And I have been reading about how a wreath made out of vegetables was an unlikely catalyst that changed things for you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it did. It makes me smile when I think about it because I actually love that it's such an unsexy story. At that point in time, I was really trying to find out who I was because as far as I was concerned, it was all set in stone what was going to happen. And actually, I was now not working and I was freelancing now because that worked for me at that, that point in time, this transition. And I was really having to sort of rise from the ashes. And for me, I realized that if I hadn't gone to the University of Life, and if I'd gone to university, I was going to do art. And so I I hadn't touched creativity, except for being in advertising, which was very, very creative. I hadn't touched um, creativity. So I turned my hand to, (laughs) I saw a book and it inspired me. So I turned my hand to wreaths. It wasn't morbid, by the way. We're talking vegetable wreaths. We're talking artichokes. I'd go down to the local vegetable shop and I would get all these amounts of vegetables. He was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm making a wreath. And then actually I bring him the wreath the next day and say, would you like this wreath? Realizing by the way, that fresh produce on a wreath doesn't actually last that long, but that didn't matter. It created this chaos in my small flat, tons of stuff everywhere. I was watching TV, I was making, I was creating. And I now know after being in my small business community for the last 20 years, so many people, this is the moment that starts their business. When something is low and creativity helps them come out the other side. And so that wreath, that vegetable wreath, then ended up me starting to think, well, where the hell am I going to sell this best-selling wreath. And I wanted to sell it at the, I lived in Chiswick at the time, which is in London. And I wanted to sell it at the local Christmas fair, but there wasn't one, you know, I couldn't even believe that there wasn't one. So because I sort of am this way, I thought, well, let's build the fair so that I can have the best trestle table selling my wreaths. And that's slightly what I tend to now do. I, I tend to look at what I want to do. And if, there isn't the platform to do it. I build the platform to be able to do it. Um, And that sort of makes sense to me. So I did. I I put on the first Christmas fair back in 2002. 
And I sold my wreaths on the best trestle table. And they were a sellout, I have to say. But I realized at that point, I didn't want to make my fortune in wreaths. I wanted to do what I was doing. I was creating an uh, affair. I was bringing all these small businesses together and it was electric. And then that's what then created my second business, which was Your Local Fair, where for two years I put on fairs all over London, bringing together small businesses, which ultimately then became the catalyst for Not on the High Street. I love the idea of making chaos and then making something out of the chaos. That's lovely. Yes. And then the reverse engineering to create the place where it should be. Yeah, I, lo- I love all that. <laughs> and so you started your, you met your partner, Frank, and you started your first business when your son was just three months old. That is something else. And I guess when it's your first, you don't really know any different. Naivety (laughs) is a wonderful thing, right? I really wish I could actually bottle naivety and have a swig on it uh, throughout all of this. Yeah, daily would be great. Yes. So, I mean, tell me how that worked. You described wanting to be a mother for your whole life, but then having to work a lot and and barely being home before bedtime. Um, And you talk about your experience of the terrible term of mummy guilt, which... I, I love it when your son asked whether men could have businesses too. And having grown up the only child of a single mum at an all-girls school with a queen and a female prime minister at the time, I also had no clue that what men were allowed to do. But can you can you describe that time and, and how that felt for you? Yeah. If I'm going to be truly honest, I've I just had a pang of it this morning. You know, my son's about to do his GCSEs. I'm in a very busy period of work at the moment, and I felt incredibly low this morning. The difference being that because the reason I felt low was uh, this is his moment and I'm I'm working a lot and he is next door. You know, he's studying next door, but I'm not there with his cue cards. You know, I'm not doing that thing. The difference now is that I walked up to him. He tucked me under his chin because he's so much taller. He gave me a cuddle and he told me, he knows how to do this with me now. He told me all the things he's going to do today and that he'll let me know if he needs my help, but that daddy's going to do this. And I will ask you, mum, I will ask you. Now that is the difference because when he was three months old, (laughs) that was very not the case. So I would say, number one, I don't think it leaves you, but you manage it. And you certainly manage it to certainly where you've turned down the volume enormously and it will just rear its head now and again. You know, certainly he's 16. But at the beginning, when you don't realise that, to turn down the volume, when you are the new mum and it's blaring loud, you know, you can't stop this innate inbuilt guilt. It was horrific because... There I was, knowing I always wanted to be a mother, always. And there, and now I was almost working on my my second child, not on the high street, Harry being my first, more than I was working on my first child. That slowly started, you know, I slowly started to rewire that because uh, it wasn't manageable to feel this guilt for that amount of time. I wasn't going to be good at either. My co-founder, Sophie, she always would, she had uh, slightly older children and she's slightly older. So she could just tell me, you know, Holly, he's so young, he will not remember all of this, you know, spend quality time, not quantity of time. And so that really helped me understand the weekends needed to be really great. I would always be there for bedtime. So even though I would work later on, I would always 
be there to say goodnight and read a book and do the whole thing. So as much as I wasn't there first thing in the morning and all day, I was definitely there. So, and as you said, I just recently did my hundredth podcast where I interviewed my son as part of it. He really doesn't know any of this. I mean, I can't even believe I've never spoken to him about it, but he didn't know any of it. He said, but if you were a man and you just came home at night, what what would be the problem here? And I was like, oh yes, I just hadn't sort of, uh, yes, you're right, Harry. That's exactly right. But my goodness, I cried into my pillow for many nights, you know, thinking that I was eternally damaging you and just effing you up enormously, that counselling would definitely be in your future because you would have abandonment issues. But it was absolutely not the case. You know, for me, it has inspired him to be who he is today. He has got massive respect for women. He's got massive respect for work ethic. He understands what it's really like to be an entrepreneur. And I feel that that's what's going to be required for all of our young in the future. They're going to have to work in a freelance lifestyle. And so that means self-starters, people who take their brand seriously. And so I think that I've been able to give him something, you know, now I look back, that was born out of this guilt. You've clearly raised a good one. I think that's a really good point about redirecting wasted capacity. I spoke to Steph Douglas of Don't Buy Her Flowers, and she talks about a similar experience. If we could only reserve that energy for something more useful seems so helpful. Yeah, I completely agree with her. And you have achieved so much, but this still does not come easily. It's it's all been work. And you say at one point in, in Do What You Love that you've been in survival mode for so long that looking up felt like a luxury you couldn't afford. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've swallowed an honest pill this morning. So I'm just telling you the truth here, but and, which is always what I want to do. I've always done because I think that we have a duty as women and as um, leaders and and people that might have built things that people deem to be successful to try and be as honest as possible about what this real journey is. Because yesterday I was talking to somebody and broke down in tears because I had that feeling. I had that sinking feeling. You know, everything is going well right now. I'm working very hard on my second business. But I think as an entrepreneur, you are never out of survival mode. It's quite a, it's an amazing high, you know, building businesses, creating new, stimulating industry thought opportunities for people. I mean, a blessing. But my shadow, a colleague of mine calls it as the shadow side. You know, the shadow side of all of that is that I'm never in a place where I can smell the roses, really. I'm making sure I try hard to, but I just, that is my position, I suppose. I have to be the person who smells trouble. I have to be the person who predicts when this is not going right. You know, so other people can bathe in the sunlight and the sunshine, but my job is to completely, really always be under the umbrella, knowing that something's going to happen. So it's quite hard. So if you're in a point in time where you're not building or something's coming up, that's great, but you're in that pre-period. For me, that is incredibly difficult to be in because I either want to be working and building or I want to be managing a crisis or I want to be in that place. So it's very hard to sort of just go with it. So, you know, I was in tears because I was exactly in survival mode, although someone would say you don't have to be, but I'm like, you always have to be. 
you always have to be in survival mode. As a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a business futurist, you always have to be in there because you just don't ever know what's going to happen. And is this because you clearly are very passionate about what you do and you care so much, but is is it added to by the responsibility of of having a team that that you also feel responsible for? I mean, it's not just the team. It's number one, this, you know, when you build your own business, lots of people used to hate me, mainly men hate me calling my businesses, my children. You know, Harry was my first child, not in the high street, really was my second and Holly and Co is my third. So that pressure is a parental pressure. You don't just say, oh, right now it's all going swimmingly well. I don't have to worry about it. You know, you can get that Uber and it's just going to be okay. You are completely always worried about it. And then secondly, I think it is the responsibility and I take my responsibility always have very seriously for my team, but my wider team, which is the community now. And so when I go to sleep, they're on my shoulders. When I wake up, they're on my shoulders. That's how I've always been. It's how I was from the day we started Not On The High Street. So that's a good, it's coming on 16, 17 years now. But that's a responsibility that I I worry when it's not weighted on me, if you see what I mean. That's my comfort. That is my place. And so it is, um, I'm in a much more comfortable place when I feel that pressure um, than when I don't. I sort of don't know who I am without it. Wow. And do you sleep? Do you switch off? What helps you? I sleep very soundly. I'm very happy. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I'm the most content with exactly who I am right now. So that pressure that for some maybe listening thinks, oh my gosh, that for me is comfort. That for me is being part of something. That for me is holding responsibility and paving the way and building. You know, those are incredible things. No, I'm a a very happy, not sleep deprived woman. (laughs) Good. I'm very happy to hear it. You speak very movingly in the book about about perhaps perhaps your sort of journey around your 40th birthday and and the 40th birthday of your friends and and realizing that our time is finite and despite the fact you're going to be working till you're 90 which I love the idea that you do want to make the most of the time we have left are you able to talk a bit more about this I I've written down the philosopher Francis Bacon's quote that you loved oh yeah yeah absolutely I mean it, he he wrote Begin doing what you want to do now. We are not living in eternity. We have only this moment. And I think that that is, well, I mean, if, if you know, people say, what's your mantra in life? I'm like, oh, uh, I have not written this down. But, you know, if I was to, I would say that this way of living, this gratitude for every single day is my heartbeat. I didn't always used to do this. I actually used to always obsess about being taken early because I thought if I thought that way, then it wouldn't happen. I was trying to cheat the universe. I was trying to say, I will go early. I will go early, which means I won't. But actually what that did is it allowed me to concentrate on the negativities, the hypochondria, the sort of looking in and thinking something was going to go wrong. Whereas actually now what I do is I, I flip it. I, I now juice the lemon out of every day, you know, and and that is, you know, two friends in the last two weeks, both have received those doomsday calls about their parents. 
Now, I've not had that call, but I know that that call or a call about my health, my partner's health, or my husband, I got married to him, someone that I love, I know it will come because it will come to all of us. And I think we all bury our heads in the sand slightly to this notion. And so I actually live with it, which can be very annoying for some people who don't have that philosophy. But, you know, when I pat the dog, I'll look into his eyes and I love him. And when I dance on the table of an evening with a friend drinking too much wine, uh, that is a gift. And when I go for a walk in nature, I really will breathe deeply because I know that it's not about just 24 hours. It's about this hour, right now, this hour. And that is what sees me through. And I, I think it's my, where I gain my energy because if you're only concentrating on this hour, this wonderful podcast, Helen, I'm doing with you, I'm really juicing the shit out of this lemon, right? I'm I'm really making the most of this day. I will go to bed tonight knowing that I've told people how much I love them, that I've given someone a big cuddle, if I'm allowed to, but Frank and things like that. But you know what I mean? Like, and I think that that is my mantra. And I I think it's going to see me in better stead than someone who is looking at the world in the opposite way. Because when their call comes, it was a bit shit before and now it's even worse, you know, and 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 I sort of don't get it. I I find it hard to be, I I, I always try and convert. <laughs> I'm like try to convert people. It's quite hard though. I think it's the way that you think. And I I didn't always think like that. So you can learn this, but you know, I don't think you're born this way. That's really interesting. I like juicing the shit out of the lemon. And I think over the last year with the lockdown. It's certainly something that I have become conscious of, of missed opportunities. And why didn't I choose to like go for that fun option and just playing it safe? And you write about a friend having a birthday in Ibiza and your instinct yes. being, oh, well, I won't go. I've got too much work to do and I, I don't do that. And But you you made yourself and you pushed yourself out of your comfort zone. I did. Oh, my How goodness. How was Ibiza? I had the time of my life. I was going to cancel about 20 times. I was CEO of Not in the High Street. Are you joking me, chairwoman? I had so much responsibility. I was wearing double spanks, tube dresses, <laughs> high heels, you know, 14 men around a table, board meetings. Do you know what I mean? This is who I am. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that we're going to go out at 11. I go to bed at 11. What are you talking about? I cannot do that. I do not want to lose control. I don't want to, I don't drink in the day. I don't ever have a glass of wine in the day. You know, this was the thing and it was a condition, condition. And actually I don't do girly stuff because you will want to then maybe talk about stuff and I need to do, you know? And, and so that was very hard, but I was forced, thankfully, to go. And, you know, after 24 hours, there I was in the pool, rolls around my belly and wearing a bikini and realizing it didn't matter and being handed a glass of wine at one o'clock in the afternoon. And then actually saying, could I have another glass? Because we were belly laughing in the sun. Uh, leaving at 11 o'clock at night to go clubbing. This was the be- This was the thing that was killing me. You want me to go to a club? I haven't been to a club since I was 14, 15 years old. 
14. Harry's never going clubbing. But anyway, yeah, you know, and I made a pact with someone, not that the other girls knew, that we would be going home at one and that we'll get a taxi and no one will know. And blah, 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 blah. Anyway, suffice to say, at eight o'clock in the morning, I was being dragged off the dance floor. I was having the time of my life. I've never experienced anything like it before or after. But I had found my flock. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd actually relaxed. I'd actually maybe fallen into the arms of a few females. I didn't have to have my guard up. I didn't have to be CEO. I didn't have to be boss. I could be Holly. And it was like, oh my gosh, who is this girl? Who is this girl with her wavy hair, with her caftan on, shoes off, swigging a beer, with the sun setting? Do you know, like, who is this person? And I really liked her. And yeah, and so from that day on, I had a flock and those girls are still my flock um, today. That's so lovely. It's, um, I was raised a Catholic, so I know a lot of sort of religious metaphors, but the idea of like being in a pool and then finding your flock and falling into the arms, there is something quite sort of rebirth going on there almost. Oh, it really was actually. There was a, I wasn't the same again after that. I, I, I'd, I'd learned how to maybe have fun you know, being allowed to have fun, you know, and being allowed to not be the grown up and being allowed to be holly. And I am actually very spiritual. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. You know, I do believe that the universe has a massive part to play in my life and um, that it will answer. And so at that point in time, that's what happened. And thank goodness it happened because I formed some bonds there that will be you know, those bonds will be there on, with me on my deathbed. You know, that that's how uh, poignant moment it was. I love that. And, and I also like how you now talk about, since then, the importance of having a break, not as in B-R-E-A-K, but as in handbrake, as in something we need to pull on. Are you now good at, at giving yourself permission or recognising when you need to stop or just rest or do something? pleasurable. Yeah, I'm I I think I'm better. I think I'm better generally at the handbrake. That can be that we are building something in the business and I sort of know that we're not going in the right direction. Rather than fearing the egg on the face, rather than fearing the ego being dented and all those sorts of stuff, I will pull on the handbrake. I'll also pull on the handbrake when it comes to my relationship with Frank and Harry that potentially in my 30s, you know, I'd let something go on and on for weeks and weeks. Whereas now, however hard it is, I'll pull on the handbrake and have the tough conversation or face into it. You know, the handbrake for me is facing into what's going wrong. And rather than just coasting along, continuing the pain or continuing what's not going right, I feel that, and again, I think you get wiser about this as you get older, that muscle has been worked more. So you can pull that handbrake a bit quicker the next time. I think though, culturally, and especially in the UK, we are not very good at having those difficult conversations. Do you find the people around you have to be nudged towards them? Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing it with my team and we're not there yet, but feedback is actually the most beautiful gift given in the right way. Well, firstly, not in the right way necessarily, but in um, when you know you're coming from a place of love, feedback is your greatest friend. Because ultimately what we have is a society that is finding it difficult to have those hard conversations. 
And certainly in business, what that just means is it will end. <laughs> because actually, the more that that feedback doesn't come out and it builds up, the more that that journey will come to a close sooner rather than later. And so for me, I feel that feedback and having difficult conversations, as long as it's from a place of love, is the greatest gift you can give. And so it's hard. It's not easy, by the way, but that is what I've committed with my team, for instance, is I will have difficult conversations. Be comforted that I will. I will not let us ever coast in a direction where it is the door because it's easier that way than me pulling you up on something or teaching you something. And actually, I hope that they, I know that they receive it with love. They know who I am, but I hope that that will become more and more ingrained in our culture. I think it is the most smart business move. I think it's brilliant for people to develop. You know, if you really do want to watch someone go through the ranks in your business, feedback is the most glorious thing that you can do. But you as a boss have got to be able to do it. You know, it's not it's not an easy thing to have hard conversations. And how do you find it when challenging feedback is directed at you? I'm just thinking of someone with such passion and who's built a business based on support and empathy, but you have a profile, you are a very successful businesswoman, you have a profile online in the media. Does that still hurt when things are directed at you or feedback is coming your way? It did. Yes, it did. I'm lucky and I'm sure things will change as if my profile increases, I know things will change. Right now, you know, my community, I love them dearly. And I think they know that and feel it. I don't get negative. I get great constructive feedback and I get great ideas and I get great thoughts that maybe I could have done something maybe a different way. But I I never get it said in a way that would upset me. I just look at it like, gosh, they must care so much that they want to tell me about this. In my business journey and my personal journey, yeah, I've had difficult times because actually I don't have many people that I have on my inner core. You know, people do that donut test, you know, when you draw an inner circle and then you draw an outer circle like a donut and you put all the people that matter the most to you inside. Then in the donut, the juicy bit, you know, that's, you know, in the ring, you put all the people that you care about and you want in your life that emphasize your life and are like radiators. And then on the outside, you put the drains and the people that don't. And when someone in your ring, something happens, that totally devastates me. I mean, because I don't have many people. So and I'm busy. And so actually the people, I don't just collect people. I'm not like a people collector, if you see what I mean. So that can devastate me when things go wrong there. I'm almost paralyzed, unable to even function because it's, as I explained, I think before, it was my inner core. It's the eye of the storm. It's the thing that makes me who I am. As long as I have my core, I'm okay. I can be Holly. I feel confident to be Holly. Isn't that interesting though? But that you are pro-vulnerability, it seems to me, in the way that you do your business and the way you you interact on social media. But that, of course, laid us, lays us open to, to pain and to vulnerability that comes with it. You, you talk about sharing your own scars and entwining these aspects of your personality with your business self online, from illness to divorce and, and writing 
what we might not naturally share on social media is exactly what will create the depth that lots of businesses hire huge agencies to create. Is this a strategy that you have come to or have you always felt that that was right for you? Uh, it's definitely a strategy I've come to. You know, I would never have come to it if it wasn't for my uh, co-founders, co-sisters, one being my actual sister, one being almost I've adopted her as my sister, Karen Gabby, my co-founders of Holly & Co. You know, at the time of launching Holly & Co, I was definitely having my second moment. I was I left not in the high street as CEO to do something new and to go to my next level. But by doing that, I became the most vulnerable because I had no idea who I was. And so they they picked me up from the floor and they said that actually I did. I never wanted to speak. I couldn't write. I didn't want to even go outside. I didn't want to be with anybody. I had no idea who I was. And they nurtured me literally for a year, needed me, gave me love, gave me the thing to say that actually I did have something of use for people and that it was almost my duty. And for me, that's a great trigger word. You know, I, I I like to help people. I feel like I want to protect people. So when they start saying it's my duty and things like that, you know, that was, and and, and their process was, you've got to be you. And, and I was like, but who am I? And they said, well, let's go on this journey, who you are. And actually over the last five years, I've now realized that the more that I share about who I am, my values, what we're building, how, who I want to help, all those sorts of things, the better it has been for our business. But that took a long time. You know, that wasn't what I am today is definitely not what I was doing five years ago. You know, I only did my first Instagram live at the beginning of March. Well, first lockdown was my first. I never would have put myself on camera ever, ever, ever. But People gave me a bit of confidence and I was able to do it. And then I helped the community. Oh, and then that for me is my energy. Oh, you mean I helped you? Oh, okay, I'll do it again. That's what happens. But I don't think it's right for everybody because for me, it gives me energy. So it gives me confidence. It allowed the phoenix to rise from the ashes. If it doesn't make you feel like that, if you feel more exposed and vulnerable, well, then that's not the right strategy for you. But I've laid myself bare and that is my commitment to what I want to do because there's a, there's a power in being vulnerable. Um, there's a power in sharing. And I'm not talking about sharing every argument with Frank or my menstrual cycle. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not my sharing. But the sharing I do is all about this journey that we're on and trying to help people I know it's corny, it's the name of my book, but do what you love and love what you do. I think it's an amazing point to focus on. I agree. I agree. And and when your friends were were helping you rise from the ashes, as you say, what was there anything that you can share that they did to help you work out who you are, who you wanted to be? Well, they kept on forcing me to do things, <laughs> you know, like uh, call the business Holly & Co., well, that took one and a half years for me to get comfortable with before I even was able to say the name Holly and Co uh, without having to give a whole one hour. But I haven't got an ego. It's not really about me, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, now I realise it's just a vehicle. You know, Holly is just a vehicle to represent what we want to do. And so I actually quite like Holly. You know, I, I, I think she works really, really hard. I know that she's pure 
And I know that she wants only the best for people. But they would just force me into things. They they force me to write for the first time on Instagram, which is what I do every single day now. But I never, I'm a dyslexic. I was told I can't write. No way should you write. Um, you should have your emails. You know, even when I was CEO, I was checking my emails with my PA. This was terrible. And it was coming back with red marks. Do you know what I mean? So continuously. So actually being told, that was really good. Keep writing. So I wrote the next day. I wrote the next day. I then found myself writing a poem. I then found myself, you know, saying, I think I want to write a book. And that has just gone on. You know, podcasts, I'd never spoken ever about anything. And now I was going to do a first podcast and now 110 episodes in. It's on conversations of inspiration. It's just an amazing opportunity. So I think that's what they did. They led me holding my hands to something. They stood around me. I did it. They caught me if I felt jittery or something. And then they gave me a cuddle afterwards, you know, or metaphorically I'm speaking here, but you know, each thing they did, they were there for me. And that was just unbelievable. That's an incredibly powerful way to way to sort of move forward. And I wonder, you've talked a little, I guess, around the idea of imposter syndrome that I wanted to ask about and being underestimated and the times when you did have to, you know, be in a boardroom with with many men and wearing two pairs of spanks. And and I know that many listeners will find that quite intimidating. Is that how you overcome these feelings? Is it the support of other women that's giving you strength here? Yes. And I think it's the support of other women. You know, when you build, it's why I feel that the future is going to be founders building businesses that matter. Because I think if you go into a room and you're selling a widget and you're just a part of the cog of life and business and you know you're building something to sell it and all this sort of stuff you sort of go in and everything is focused in on the KPIs the key performance indicators how you're doing maybe what I would say the left side of the brain so all of the data and the facts when you build something that matters You can walk into any boardroom, yes, knowing your left side, yes, knowing your facts, but ultimately you can always talk about the cause. You can always talk about the bigger picture. You can always talk about the dial that we are actually trying to move. Fine, sales were down last month, but did you know that we have changed the lives of a thousand people? What is the opportunity of changing lives, you know, versus sales are down a month? And that's very much what I'm looking at with Holly & Co. You know, you know, a lot of people would say, what is Holly & Co? You know, I couldn't even answer it for the first couple of years, which was (laughs) my imposter syndrome was out of control at this point in time. But I kept on having to say to myself, that's okay. That means you're doing something different. This is actually you're building something. This is you're doing something that's going to change the world. Because when you do change the world, no one understands it really at the beginning. You've got to find your journey. This is the journey that you're on. It's not a destination, all these sorts of things. And so, yes, the imposter syndrome can be fierce. I do look at it sometimes as my friend because I am always prepared. I always 
try and be my best self. So I will read up and prepare myself for whatever I'm going into. So if I was going into a boardroom, I would know my board pack. You can throw me a question. You can think I'm going to crumble. I'm just going to actually smile and give you the answer back. That was my sort of Beyonce, if you so to speak, you know, doing this. But then once you've got that all out the way, you know, got your imposter out the way, you know, it allows you to sort of maybe stand on imposter's shoulders and sort of say actually what you want to do, the vision that you do have. And this is wonderful because I do think the imposter syndrome starts to shrink the more confidence that you get. So you've got to put yourself in those positions where the imposter syndrome is is nasty at that point. And then I think that if you can if you can slay the dragon, so to speak, and get to the other side, the next time it, it, it is a little bit better. So you grow from it. Yeah, absolutely. You grow from it, but it never leaves you, ever leaves you. So it's a complete myth that you can somehow sit on panels or listen to things and the imposter syndrome goes. It never goes. It's how you harness that power of it. It's how you recognize it, understand it, know it's the difference between what you know today and what you will learn tomorrow. You know, that's really the slice of what we're talking about. What is imposter syndrome? It's what I just don't know, you know, and, and I think that's a, it's a good thing to realise. I think that's a really helpful thing to share. Thank you, because I think a lot of people listening will think that it's a, a, a sort of a fault almost or something to be overcome. But actually, you're saying that that's a valuable thing and we shouldn't wish it away. No, you just should learn through it and then say, gosh, that's my gap. Rather than ignore it, that's my gap. And I'm going to go and learn about that gap. And then next time, if I do actually, and the thing is, us women need to commit to the learning of that gap because, you know, I I normally hear a lot about the imposter syndrome when it comes to finances. And yet, do we then go and do a course? Do we go and hire an accountant for two hours and say, right, you are never to repeat what I'm about to ask you. It's the most embarrassing questions of my life. But anyway, I've been running a company for 10 years and I still don't know what a PL is, whatever it is. But have you taken those steps? to fill in that gap. Because if you're eternally going to have that imposter syndrome of that gap, you're sort of causing that. And so that's something, you know, I, I like to think that we can move on from these labels. Yes, you're you're very passionate about the fact that we are all capable of taking financial control. Is that something that then does come up a lot, it sounds like, in your, in your community? Oh, yes, massively. And it has come up for me, you know, four times I've nearly personally gone under Five times I've raised money for not on the high street. Holly and Co is just so not there yet. You know, it's still a fledgling business. Money is a, you know, there's some stresses, isn't there? There's good stress, and I thrive off good stress. A crisis, things like that. Then there's bad stress, and one of the things I would say is money worries. Waking up at two in the morning with the sweats because you sort of know in a month's time your business is going under. You know, that is not a world you want to live in. And when we take control of our finances and at least look it straight in the face, you know, you can never unknow what you know. Now, someone once told me that. Just You can never unknow what you know. So now I know that I'm going under in a month's time rather than having my head like an ostrich. I now can potentially do something about it. And I think that that is a great strength for women for everybody to understand their finances when it comes to personal life and business, to understand what course they're plotting or what road they need to travel 
but we've we've got some work to be done. You know, there's work to be done, and I'm 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 right there next to people who want to do it. I think people will find that so comforting to hear. So you have to be brave. You have to do the work. And I am aware that I've taken up lots of your time. I could talk to you for hours, but I would love to ask just finally, firstly, what you do now when you're feeling sad, what helps lift you up? And then what you wish you had known when you were 21 that you know now about being sad? I embrace creativity. So that is, be it go to, when we could, the V&A and see the Frida exhibition and then go and spend a crazy amount in the shop um, with all things Frida, be it designing my home and shopping from small businesses and the wonder that they give me, or designing, you know, the next thing that we're going to do or writing or podcast, you know, creativity for me is an absolute antidote. I suppose it goes full circle back to the wreath, you know, that it still is my medicine. And when I think back to my 21-year-old self, I just sort of want to tell her how extraordinary she is and that I think of her maternal, you know, maternally and I just think I'm so proud of what she's about to go through because she's going to work really hard and she's going to have a lot of knocks and some really not so great things are going to happen to her but she is going to be that phoenix that rises and it's why in my book I've dedicated it to all who have risen from the ashes because it's very much something that has been part of my life. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Holly Tucker. A real pleasure to speak to you today. And Thank you so much, Helen. It's been glorious. <laughs> Everyone should go and read Do What You Love now. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.